Guys, if you're here in the Oxygen, why don't you take your seats? Uh, we are going to open God's Word together now. Uh, if you've joined us since the beginning of the service, I just want to extend a really warm welcome to you. Uh, thank you for joining us today uh, at Foundation Church. My name's Owen. I have the privilege of leading the team here. And we are right still, I would say, in the early stages. I was about to say right in the middle of, but we're nowhere near the middle yet. We are in the early stages of a series uh, of talks working through the New Testament book of Luke, uh, a series we've called On the Road with Jesus. And we are today in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through to 49. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, if you do have a Bible, I really would encourage you to open it up. Go ahead, find Luke chapter 6, uh, and we will read together in just a moment. Now, the verses we're going to read together today, if you've been with us over the last week's pick, right up where we left off last week. Uh, so just a very quick recap. Last week, we looked in Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through to, uh, well, we actually did 17 through to 26, but the last bit we read uh, was 20 to 26. And we read in those verses that as Jesus taught those who had come to him and who were following him, he taught them that those who recognize their need of a savior, those who recognize their poverty in spirit, those who mourn their sin and their brokenness would be the ones who find lasting joy and hope in him, who find restoration and wholeness, salvation in Jesus. And those are the ones who accept his invitation to come, to be known and loved in spite of their brokenness, in spite of their shame. No hiding, no covering it over, no putting a sheen on it and pretending that they've got it all together, but to be known and loved by their Savior in, in all of their brokenness. And as we pick up today from verse 27... We're going to hear from Jesus again, but this time, how those people who come to him are to continue with him. So these verses today are addressing those who have received grace, those who know what it is to have received the love of God in Christ Jesus, how they continue walking with him. Those who've come to know him, how they will grow like him. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Now, we've got loads of ground to cover, like I said, so we're going to get straight in. Uh, from verse 27, we read this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Okay, let's pause. Not skip over that. That's a big one, right? Love your enemies, Jesus says. Now, what on earth should we be loving our enemies for? What's that about? Be like, Jesus, what are you saying? That's not a natural thing. Now, we have lots of trouble with this phrase. For starters, for love, our understanding is not so good. I think a lot of the time we have a very unhelpful view of love in our society, and we also have a very unhelpful way of speaking about love. And mostly that's because we have the one word we use, and we use it for near enough everything, right? So, for example, I love the burgers from Spielberger in town. 
they're good, right? If you haven't had one yet, you should check them out. They're, you can get it on Deliveroo at the moment. Very good burgers. I love watching rugby, especially when Wales beat England. I just do. And I love my wife. It's three very different things. One word, but I clearly don't mean the same thing. I don't love my wife in the same way that I love burgers from Spielberger. And if I do, then we're in a lot of trouble, right? But we also tend to think of love in an unhelpful way often. We tend to think of love as some emotional response or connection that we have and that we have no control over. It just happens to us in response to someone or something. It's like some external force that acts on us, and we just can't do anything about it. That's the way people talk about love, isn't it? It's kind of like Cupid's arrow hits, and bam, like you're in love, and there's nothing you could do about that thing. This emotional response. But that's not actually the way the Bible speaks of love. And it's not what Jesus is talking about here when he says, love your enemy. I would be very surprised if any of you saw your enemy and had a kind of mushy, romantic, emotional response towards them. That would just be straight weird, yes? That's not what Jesus is talking about. Now, just to help us very quickly, we need to understand that there are four kinds of love spoken about in Scripture. And so it would serve us well to know what kind of love Jesus is talking about here when he says, love your enemy, wouldn't it? It would. Um, (laughs) Because they mean quite different things. And, And the first one, very, very quickly, storge. Storge is natural affection. It's like you naturally warm towards certain people or things. Storge. There's philia. This is a a deep friendship, brotherly love. It's the it's the, the, the affection between very close companions. Then there's eros. We have probably heard a word similar to that, which has its root in the same thing. It's romantic love. It's actually the love that gets an awful lot of press these days. It's what we tend to think of. That romantic, excited, in love feeling. And then there's agape, which is altogether different. Agape is a a self-sacrificing love. It's the kind of love that Jesus commands here that we should have for our enemies. Agape isn't rooted in the merit of the one who you love, unlike all the others. The others are a response to something endearing or praiseworthy that you see in the object of your love, yes? There's storge, you, you, there's something about that person that you just warm to, that you have affection for. Eros, you, you find them attractive, There's something about them that causes this response in you, but agape is not like that. It's actually oftentimes love in spite of our lack of attraction or warmth or fondness for someone. 
It's a deliberate love, a love rooted in the choice of the person loving rather than the overflow of emotion in response to the person that they love. It's an act of will. It's a decision to love. So, Jesus, if you remember back to last week, having just said to his followers that you're blessed if people hate you and reject you for following me. I don't know if you remember that back in verse 22. It says, And when they do, because they will, when they oppose you, when they speak ill of you, remember the people that heard this would have had that ringing in their ears, people who would reject them, who would hate them, who would mistreat them on account of the fact that they were following Jesus. He says, when they do that, when they speak ill of you, love them. Choose to love them. And then he goes on to help us understand what that means. Let's read on. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is not a natural response, is it? Or maybe you are just all far, far more naturally amazing in your love than me. But this is not a natural response to someone who, who hates you who curses you, who does harm against you, who abuses you in some way to to do good towards them, to bless them, to pray for them, however horrid they are to you, however much they act against you, Jesus says, don't bite back. Do good to them. Serve them. Help them. Look for ways to be kind and generous towards them. However much they spew bile about you, however much they spread gossip and slander about you, however much they attempt to ruin your name and drag it through the mud, speak well of them to others. Bless those who curse you. Look for things that are praiseworthy in their life and compliment them instead of dragging them down. Wow. (laughs) Like, that's tough. Yes? You can say yes. You can agree. I mean, again, maybe you don't think that that sounds like a difficult thing to do, but I do. (laughs) Let's read on. Jesus says from verse 29, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Now, there's a lot going on here. (laughs) And I really wish we had time to take a deep dive into it. And maybe another time we will in some of it. But, But in essence, Jesus is tapping into this. Our natural response, our nature is that we want to retaliate. When we're wronged, we want to make the perpetrators pay, don't we? We do. (laughs) We do. And Jesus says, don't. (laughs) Jesus here says, don't react like that. Now, we've got to ask, is Jesus here then saying that Christians are to be doormats? 
who never defend themselves and who don't own anything because they've given it all away? The answer to that's no. <laughs> uh, now, Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar and commentator, uh, says this. He says, if Christians took this absolutely literally, uh, kind of at face value, as it were, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another class of prosperous idlers and thieves. It's not this which Jesus is seeking, but instead a readiness among his followers to give and give and give. Jesus is advocating here a radical love that isn't vengeful, but is merciful and supernaturally generous towards others. To give without expecting anything in return, not to repay for wrong for wrong, not to seek revenge, but to be forgiving and generous even to those who hate you on account of your faith. This is a big call. He carries on from verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend from those who you expect to receive. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Look, Jesus says here, (laughs) it's easy to be the kind of people who are kind to those who are kind to you. It's not difficult, is it? We don't tend to struggle with that. right? If someone's kind to you, it's quite easy to be kind to them. If you know that in doing good to someone, they will do good back to you, well, that's actually not much of a hardship. That's not difficult, is it? We are okay with that. In fact, it's actually very easy to do these things in the end out of a selfish motive when you think you'll get something back from them. We, we can reason it in our minds like this. We sort of think, I'll help you and be kind to you, and somewhere down the line, you know I'm calling in that favor. Yeah? I've spoken to people like that, even in the last couple of weeks, who who have that mentality, who have this kind of like, well, you know, I'll scratch your back and you'll scratch mine. Like, if I do this for you, then, you know, at some point in the future, I can call that favor back in. Jesus says, that isn't the way I'm calling you to be as Christians. Anyone can do that. In fact, pretty much everyone does do that. But I'm calling you to love in a way that costs. To love in a way that isn't about what you're going to get back out of it. To love without expecting anything in return. It carries on. He says, I'm calling you to do this. From verse 35, but love your enemies like, don't just do it for nice people who are going to do nice things for you. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful then, as your Father is merciful. Jesus 
takes us now and helps us understand what's going on here. Yeah, as impossible as this sounds, Jesus says, this is the way you're supposed to live. And, and when you do, something happens. And that's that people will see something of God's love reflected in your life. What does he say here? He says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is a call to mirror the love of God. This is a call to reflect the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, who hasn't treated us as our sins deserve. We're called to love as we've been loved. He says, and as you do, people will see that. Now, where it says here, this is, this is an unusual phrase for us, where it says, uh, you will be sons. Yeah? So your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. It's easy for us to read that, and think, oh, okay, so if we do that, that makes us a Christian. That, that, the way it reads in the English could lead us to that conclusion. Like, this is how we earn our relationship with God. If we do these things, then we will become sons of the Most High. But that's not actually how it reads or what it's saying. That's not what it means. The essence of this phrase is that if you behave like this, if you engage in this way, you will be seen as, you will be known as, you will be recognized as sons of the Most High God. It's not a means of salvation. It's not how you receive sonship with God. But it's a mark of the fact that you are saved because sons are like their fathers. There's a family resemblance as those who love in this way reflect the love of God. If you've received mercy, then you should show mercy because that shows that you've received it, yeah? When we love people like this, Jesus is saying, it, it marks us out as being his followers, as being his disciples. Our heavenly Father is merciful, so we too are merciful. And apart from him, it's not possible to love like this. Jesus has just told them that they're blessed if people hate them and persecute them for following him. And now he says, those people who persecute you and hate you, you're supposed to love them. Why? Because you're sons. Because you've received mercy. Because this is precisely what Christ has done for us. Whilst we railed against God's law in our hearts, whilst we rebelled against him in our sinfulness, whilst we rejected him, he loved you. And more, he came. Christ came and went to the cross willingly while you were in rebellion, in your sin, while you were, through your own doing, his enemy. He came in love for you and he was beaten and rejected and scorned and hated so that those who had hated and rejected him could find forgiveness. And as he went through that rejection and beating 
and scorn. What did he do? With all the power. Like in a moment, Jesus could have ended it. In a moment, he could have struck dead those who mocked him when he was on the cross or those who came to arrest him in the garden. But he didn't. He didn't retaliate. He loved them. And in his love, staggeringly, amazingly in his love, whilst people mocked him while he hung on the cross, what did he do? He prayed for them. We read, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Isn't that stunning? And Jesus said, that love, <laughs> that love I've extended to you in your sinfulness and your brokenness, I want you to pour that out on others who don't deserve it either. As I've loved you, love one another. And he says to us, continue from verse 37 he says this now judge not and you will not be judged condemn not and you will not be condemned forgive and you will be forgiven give and it will be given to you good measure pressed down shaken together running over will be put into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you he also told them a parable can a blind man lead a blind man will they not both fall into a pit I love some of the illustrations Jesus uses. They're really funny, aren't they? It's just like, what point's that? Like, can a blind man lead another blind man? They're just going to both trip into a hole, and that's no use for anyone. Anyway, sorry. It says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, we really do not have time to do a deep dive into everything that's going on here. There is a huge amount in this passage. It could be a whole series in itself. Uh, <laughs> Just very quickly to say these first few phrases, the judge not, forgive and you'll be forgiven. They're a bit like the, and then you will be sons that we talked about earlier. Okay, It doesn't mean that by not judging or by forgiving you earn God's forgiveness or free yourself from judgment. So if you just go around and you, and you never judge anyone and you never like actually legitimately see sin in someone else's life and say, that's wrong. If, as long as you don't do that, then you won't be judged. I mean, you can do whatever you like as long as you don't judge people, then you won't be judged. And as long as you forgive everyone, then, then you'll be forgiven. That's not actually what this is teaching. That would be another way of us earning salvation. That's not what's going on here. It's not a condition of salvation. If you do this, then you'll be saved. But much like the then you'll be seen to be viewed as, understood as sons, it's Jesus saying here, it's a sign of your salvation. If you've experienced forgiveness, you'll be forgiving. <laughs> if you know 
what you've received in Christ, you will extend that to others. If you know the favor and mercy of God, then you'll forgive others and you won't be judgmental towards others. But we're just going to open it up a little bit more. Because <laughs> people love this bit. I don't know if you ever noticed that. There are some verses in the Bible that people just like a lot more than other verses in the Bible. And this set of verses about judge not and you won't be judged, forgive and you'll be forgiven, condemn not and you won't be condemned, take the log out of your eye before you get the speck in someone else's. People flipping love these verses. They read this and they think, now that's a bit of the Bible I can get on board with. Love it. Because what they do is they take it all to see themselves in the best possible light. I don't know if you've noticed that people are inclined to do that. I'm inclined to do that. We all are, right? We don't like being judged. We don't like people pointing out sin in our lives. It's not comfortable. We don't like people pointing out our faults and failings, do we? So we love this verse because we read it, and then if someone tries to say something to us, we're like, nah, uh, uh, can't judge me. Nah, uh, Jesus said, can't judge me. Yeah? Take that log out. Yeah? Don't you come looking for my speck? Deal with your log. Yeah? Can't judge me. People love it. It's as though everyone can say and do whatever they like, and no one else has any right to say anything about it. Because if someone does, then they're judging and then they're in trouble. You, you mustn't do that. This passage just isn't a carte blanche to do whatever you want, though. It really isn't. In fact, in just a minute, Jesus is going to talk about lives that produce good fruit and bad fruit and that you people are judged based on that, that you see whether someone is truly a Christian or not based on what they do. And so clearly... This can't be a call to never actually assess the fruit of someone's life. As Christians, we are to know and to speak about what is right and wrong. The Bible is very clear on these issues. And Jesus also here isn't saying that no one can address sin in someone else's life. In fact, there are other parts in Scripture, uh, Matthew 18 for example, where actually Jesus himself gives instruction on how you should address sin in someone else's life. There's clearly no question for him whether you should or not. He even tells you how you should do it. But, but, this is about being judgmental. It's about believing that you've got it all right and everyone else has got it all wrong. If you are proud enough to hide your sin, or worse, utterly blind to the fact that you even have any, and yet you're very quick to point out all the faults and failings of other people, then you are in a dangerous place. Because what Jesus is addressing here is a judgmental attitude and superiority of heart that is sinful and proud. And is not the way... His disciples should engage. He's addressing the person who thinks the problem is everyone else. And can't we all at times be that person? 
if we're honest with ourselves, we'll acknowledge that it's amazing how quick we are. I just want you to listen to this. If we're honest with ourselves, we will acknowledge that it's amazing how quick we are to condemn our own secret sins in the lives of other people. If you struggle, for example, with control and an unhealthy desire for power, I would wager that the sins you're quickest to see and point out in the lives of others are related to that. Jesus here is addressing the hypocrisy of having more grace for yourself than you do for everyone else. It's very easy to be quick to excuse or ignore our own sins, but very quick to jump on someone else's and slap them down for it. Jesus is saying here, we have to be real about our own need. There's only one sinless saviour, yeah? And it isn't you, just in case you're wondering, okay? There's only one sinless saviour, and it isn't you. We need to acknowledge our failures. And then out of that place, lovingly help others find hope in Christ for theirs. We don't do anyone any favours by standing aloof and pretending that we've got it all together and that they need to get themselves sorted. Have you ever met people like that? Just in conversation with them. Maybe you've been that person too. Lots of us have. Where you just, like you speak to someone and they, they just don't struggle with anything. Like that there is no sin that they struggle with in their life at all. They're always very, very eager to help you with all of yours. Don't be that person. When Jesus talks about the log and the speck, you need to pay attention to the sin in your own life. Be real about your need of a saviour. Be quick to repent and ask for forgiveness. Something of the blind man that Jesus talks about here is this, this blind man is someone who, who just doesn't see their own sin or need of forgiveness. Like they're the, the person who doesn't see the need of putting into practice what Jesus has been teaching. If they then go around trying to help everyone else, you all fall down a hole. You all end up in a pit. It's not a lot of use. So firstly, we need to be honest. Confess our sins. Confess our shortcomings and our own need of forgiveness. Find it in him. And then, then we can help others. Gently, humbly, soberly, not out of a desire to kind of get one over on them or to help them see how much better you are than them, but out of a desire to help them for their good. Just a part of this, talk to them about it rather than other people. If you're quicker to talk, to, if you're quicker to talk about someone's sin to someone else than you are to talk to them about it, then I'd say this passage... You need to read it again. And, and if you still find that, read it again. And ask God to help you. 
We don't need pious, judgmental people full of pride. We need loving brothers and sisters who know their own sin, who know their own shortcomings, but who also know the redeeming love of a perfect saviour who's able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I, we've got to be open to this, guys. In, in this church, we've got to be open to this. So I, I want to say, if you see sin in my life, if you see me respond to something in a way that's not honouring to God, that's not right, please, Talk to me about it. Pray for me and talk to me about it. We need that level of openness and accountability and approachability with one another. It's essential. Let's read on from verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Just to be clear, Jesus isn't actually talking about fruit, He's talking about people, talking about their lives, what the, what the evidence of our life is. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Again, Jesus is insistent here. That if you are his disciple, if you're born again, if you have found forgiveness in him, then that will be observable in the way you live, in the way you engage with other people. He's like, I'm a good tree. The, the good tree is someone who has found forgiveness in him. Because what, does it, what should it produce? Good fruit. We're to be loving as he is loving, forgiving, generous, merciful, just as he has been with us. We read in Galatians elsewhere, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the kind of evidence that Jesus is talking about. We read that the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we consistently exhibit the opposite of those things, then there's a problem. Christians don't persist in sin. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be perfect in all of those things, because you won't be. but you should be making progress. Yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the evidence that you are a Christian, <laughs> is that you're growing in those things. You're becoming more like Christ, that you're growing in love, in joy, in peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. If you're not growing in those things then there's a problem. Now maybe, right now, 
you're thinking of all of the reasons why this doesn't apply to you or shouldn't apply to you. Perhaps you're thinking about the bad fruit. Maybe you're thinking about the challenge of loving your enemies, about not seeking revenge against those who speak ill of you or do harm to you. Perhaps you're processing the times when you can look down your nose at other people, have a harsh, judgmental attitude towards them. And as you think through those things that Jesus has been addressing, you can begin to get a little bit defensive. You you kind of think through it and kind of puts you on the back foot a little bit, doesn't it? You think, well, hang on a minute. And maybe right now you're thinking that and and perhaps even beginning in your head to, to justify why that's the case for you and and why you're not like that and and i guess perhaps jesus's first hearers were doing the same as they listened to this teaching and started thinking whoa hang about <laughs> like that's challenging <laughs> oh and in his wisdom jesus speaks to us in that moment and in that place in his wisdom, knowing that we're going to hear this and get on the defensive, knowing that we're going to hear this and come up with all the reasons why we can't do that. Jesus speaks to us. Let's read on. It says from verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Ouch. Essentially, Jesus here says there's no excuse. You you can be be sat there thinking of all the reasons why this can't apply to you. And then he goes, yeah, like you hear all this and ignore it or pretend it doesn't apply to you or try and excuse yourself from it. You're like an idiot that built his house on the sandy shore and when a storm railed up, the house unsurprisingly collapses. It's ruined. Just to hear Jesus' teaching and excuse yourself and not follow through with any action is foolishness. Jesus says his disciples are those who hear and who obey. They're those who not only hear God's word but who put it in practice who live in obedience to it, who submit themselves to it, and as a result, build their lives, build their identity, build their future on a solid foundation. This obedience means living in such a way that brings glory to God, but also benefits those around you. It's a generous, 
giving, serving way of life. It's all very well saying, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. Jesus says here, doesn't he? He says, he says why do you call me Lord, Lord? There's this, this sense that it's all very well kind of even going, oh, yes, Lord. But if you don't actually live a life of obedience to him, it proves your words to be hollow. And Jesus says you're in danger. So what do we do about it? Because this is huge, right? I don't know about you, but like I read that and I can easily then go, oh man, I'm stuffed. I don't mean that to sound glib or light. I legitimately, I can read that and think, oh, oh dear. Now the truth is, in our own strength, this isn't possible. This is utterly impossible. If you take this on and you think, like, I can do this, like with, with just kind of gritted teeth and determination, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard, I'm going to be better, Jesus. Like you read this and you think, yeah, no, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to be better I'm, this week. I'm going to get all this right, Jesus. I'm going to love my enemies and I'm going to do the thing with the specks and the planks and I'm going to do the bearing fruit thing and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'll be this person. <laughs> if you think that, you're crazy. You're deluded. We can't do it on our own. This is a, this is a supernatural love that apart from the work of God in us is utterly impossible, apart from an absolute awareness of our utter dependence on him, is completely pie in the sky. We need him. We need his spirit at work in us for this to be even a faint possibility. That doesn't excuse us from playing our part but it lifts the weight off us expecting that we're going to do it all on our own. And so what do we do? We're going to come to sing one final song in a minute. I wonder maybe the musicians could come back. But this is how we respond. This is what we do. First, we recognize we can't do it on our own. We humbly come to him and acknowledge our need. Secondly, we remember his great love towards us. Guys, don't lose sight of the fact that we come to a God who hasn't treated us as our sins deserve. He hasn't rejected us and turned his back on us, but instead out of his great love has turned his face towards us and who has come in the person of Christ Jesus and has paid the price for our sins so that we might find forgiveness. We remember his love, his mercy, his kindness. And we confess our sins. We remember the great truth that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
and then we ask for his equipping. That we might love as we've been loved, that we might extend mercy as we have received mercy. We ask for his Holy Spirit to come and be at work in us and empower us to live the way he calls us to. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing one final song.